This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. Globalism seems to be, I don't want to say it's winning, but it seems to be. It's, it seems to be when, when everybody supports manufacturing in China. Trump was the first one to say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's take a hard look at this. No, we're going to bring everything back here. And it, that seemed to have gone away after that election. And we need to bring it back to whatever degree we've lost the tide that was turning. We need to bring that, that tide back, that tide of American manufacturing, that tide, the wave, not a red wave or a blue wave. It's a red, white, and blue wave of bringing the industry back to America. Trousers and motorcycle boots And a black leather jacket with his name on the back He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio His name is New York Mike And welcome to the show This is Roll Right Radio on New York Mike You're still rolling with New York Mike <laughs> That's, I gotta tell you Yes, we, we are rolling And you wouldn't, I, I guess, maybe you wouldn't know it from the, the political weight of the of the podcast. I, I mean, it's been just, uh, yeah, it's, it's been that way. I think that the election of this so-called president, my God, what, what's wrong with this guy? Joe Biden is just a pathetic individual. I don't care. Look, you could be Democrat. You still got to understand that. But I, I want, I, I've gone way off track from where I wanted to be originally. I wanted to be a motorcycle-centered podcast. Yes, with political implications, because politics, it, it's like I said, when anybody ever asks me about business, especially the motorcycle business, how you doing, what do you think of this, and what do you think of the, the marketplace? And I said, I don't, the vagaries of the marketplace, totally understandable. It's readable. You can... You can see it. The writing is there on the wall. You can see when the market goes up and goes down. You, you can see what you need to do to handle what your market is. It's there. It was never the marketplace that bothered me or affected me when, you know, business went down. Clearly, you know, there were, there were times, talk about the 08 crash and everything went to hell in a handbasket. And... We saw it coming, so we adjusted. We, we took care of it. We got through it. But what you can't figure on, and maybe it's just I can't figure on, is government intervention, government interference, because it's illogical to someone like me. I don't know if it's, that's just because I'm so, I don't know what the word is, blindsided, uh, narrow-minded, just focused on the things the way I think they should be in a, in a free market capitalism to me it's just it's amazing it's wonderful and there are people out there that go they need government control of everything you got to have rules and regulations and yeah i understand some rules and regulations but then the government comes in and they they'll, they'll, they'll raise taxes they'll raise fees they'll they'll cause you to have to use alternatives to whatever it is you're using to manufacture stuff, for cleaning, for this. We, we tried, San Diego Harley-Davidson, we tried to get a, I want to say a water-based, a cleaning system in. We had plumbers in. We spent a ton of money. I mean, I'm talking six figures to get all the equipment, but then we never could get the permits. Year after year, we tried. We had plumbers come in and say to us, wait a minute, you already bought all this equipment? You're already set up for that? And you can't get the permit? Oh, let me, I could do that. Three, four, five months later, they come back frustrated. Well, we couldn't get the permits. We, This and that. And why? Because you have to prove the water runoff isn't going to go into the system out to the ocean. I mean, do they mean well? I guess they do. It makes no sense to me. But there's other restrictions and government, this and that. It's always that the government just steps in and and makes it, it it's just so costly so difficult to be successful so the political reality of of life 
comes home. It, look, it came home to me a long time ago. I said I, I want to talk about the things I love, the things I enjoy doing. But then politics comes into play because I realize that most things that I enjoy doing, the government wants to supervise <laughs> as, as I do it. We, we really, we've got to get them as far out of our life as is reasonable. Let me put it that way. So we are rolling <laughs> and, and, and it's still rolling and, and I'm still rolling and I'm getting ready to leave for Sturgis and I'm excited about that. It's, we're leaving a week from Friday, the, the end of this, we're, we're a little over a week and a half. We're going to be on the road. I'm, I love being on the road. And, you know, people ask me all the time, especially years ago when it was like more of a phenomenon of people riding motorcycles. When I li- even way, way back when I lived in New York over 35, 40 years ago, and we used to ride down to Daytona for Bike Week. And that was in February. We'd leave in the end of February. Bike Week was always the first week of March. And Bike Week came about, if you don't know, the Daytona 200, the, the race that started back, well, 80, what, 81 years ago, 80, 82 years ago now. So that race used to be on the beach and then come up onto, what, A1A, that highway, and, it, and then all around and back on the beach. And it was a 200-mile race. It was the Daytona 200. And I don't know what year the Daytona track was built, probably the late 60s, when it came on to the racetrack. But before then, the Daytona 200 was a race that was on the beach. <laughs> and and I, I think in the beginning, you can go back, I don't know what all the brands were, but that race was dominated by Harley-Davidson and Indian motorcycles back back in those days. So it was like I would get on the road and people say, man, you, you're going to ride now. It, it doesn't seem like a lot today, but it's 900 miles from New York City to Daytona, Florida. And people were like, whoa, that's so far. And I, I, I'll admit, if you think that ride, especially at the end of February, was a fun thing to do on a regular, <laughs> on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour, day-to-day. It was horrible in so many respects. Did we ever get a day or two of real good riding? Yeah, every once in a while. But most of the time, we, we would hang around. I think I've talked about this before. We, we would hang around that week and wait for the weather in in the city to get down, to get up, actually, above... Yeah, you know, you want to see around at least 36 to 40 degrees because you, you don't want to hit the ice on the road. You don't want to freeze. And remember, at that time of the year, we leave the city, we go over the GW, we get on the Jersey Turnpike, and you, you, you can't leave at 8 or 9 in the morning. It's way too cold. It's not going to warm up to that high 30s, 36, 38 until 11 o'clock, maybe one little before that. And then it starts getting dark around 3, 3.30. By 4, 4.30 in February, it's, it's, it's pitch black. And so it gets colder. And you, you got a, f- a few hours to get out of town. And the goal is always to get over the Delaware Memorial Bridge. So if you think that was a fun to do. No, but I'm on a motorcycle. Back in the day. I mean, I remember doing it on, on my Sportster and it was it was great. But then when I, I got my first I'm trying to remember the the um the the, the best Sportster story I can I can reach back to. I my I had a the last the last Kickstart Sportster I think it was a 68 or a 69. No, the, the first electric start, I think it was 68. So it must have been a 67. And it was probably, at that time, up until that time, that was the most reliable bike I'd ever had. And that includes back in the early days when I was riding a Triumph. I had a, had a 
a pretty kick-ass Triumph. A rattle trap, actually. But hey, it was a cool but I liked it. And uh, then they had a BSA that I loved. Um, but I think that, that 60-something Sportster, kickstart only Sportster, was um, probably the most reliable motorcycle up, like, up until the Evo time. So whatever it was I was riding, it was great to be on the motorcycle and be on the road. And you dealt with all the, the cold and the, the wet and the snow. I mean, it's, it's, remember, this is the end of February, the first week of March. So anyway, we'd leave, roll down to Daytona, day and a half ride, you know, maybe two-day ride. Because back in those days, it was, it was hard to do a 500-mile day. We did them, but it was hard. And then well, you get to Daytona, usually the weather was pretty nice when you got down North Carolina, South Carolina. So... It was a good ride, but people would always, are you kidding me? You rode to Daytona? And I'm thinking, yeah, well, did you? And it's like, yes. And all those elements that I had to deal with, including the boredom, <laughs> when, when it's just you in the road and, and you're going and you didn't have that windshield that we have. You, it was all these things. Didn't have the heated grips. You didn't have the big engine. You didn't have. You didn't have the equipment. I had a my biker jacket. I still have a biker jacket from the seventies, and I mean it's a beautiful thing to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm about ready to donate it, but I look at it and I go, "Wow, that's what I wore in all those elements, even on the East Coast in the winter time. I can't even believe it." And we put a. Sh- a sweatshirt. I remember the first time, and I don't remember what year it was, the first time I, I got a heated vest. Somebody showed it to me at one of the dealerships and sold it to me. I think it was a Vetter. And I hooked it up to the battery, and then I put it on and turned it on. <laughs> I don't remember the details. But I had, it was just a vest. And it was like, oh, my God. This is great. And so I, we got down and I re, we stopped at like a Waffle House. And it, it, I don't remember, I think it was North Carolina. And we, we go into a Waffle House, pull the bikes in. There were about three of us, maybe there were four of us. And we, we take us, you know, it's freezing cold, blah, blah, blah. Not that cold in the Carolinas, but it's still, you know, when it's in the 50s, and you're going 65, 70 on a motorcycle, it gets cold. So we go inside, we all take off our jackets and sit down. And the guy's like, what's that? And I go, oh, man, this is my heated vest. What? And then they looked at me like I was cheating. <laughs> I go, no, 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 no. Hey, I'm not here to prove that I can, that I can deal with the cold weather. I'm here to ride my motorcycle, man. I did my cold weather training at Fort Greeley, Alaska in January and February. That was a long time ago. So those elements are fine. It didn't bother me. The boredom, yeah. And and the same thing, going across the country, even today on, uh, you know, all the great Harleys that I've been riding for the last, what, 30 years, all the, the, the Evo, since the, you know, the Evolution engine, the Evo, it's it's been a a, a, a a treat. Every day has been a treat. You you don't carry parts with you. You don't carry that toolbox that you always needed and used. You you just you just enjoy the ride. But even on that Evo, and you know, yeah, it gets damn right, it gets boring. But you know what? I tell people, do you think every moment that you're climbing Mount Everest is exciting? You think that playing right field. I don't care if you're playing for the New York New York Yankees. You're standing in right field, nine innings. How many balls are hit to right field in a three-hour baseball game? <laughs> what? <laughs> three? Five? You get up twice, maybe three times? That's it? Okay. Most of the time, you're either standing around in the field, looking at, looking at the sun, <laughs> or you're sitting in the dugout waiting to get up. That's, don't tell me that it's that much different. But for those few moments, 
when that ball comes to you, when you got to catch that fly ball or handle that grounder, or you're up there and you get your you get your three swings, okay? Those moments are worth every minute of it. It's the same thing. You're riding that motorcycle. There are moments on every ride that are amazing. And the exhilaration that you get going around a corner, hitting the, whatever it is, it's going to be there. You don't have to search it out. Now, we do sometimes. I remember riding with Robert Patrick. You know, every year we go to Rolling Thunder together. And I remember that one year that we sought out the dragon, the tail of the dragon. Someone's down there in south of Tennessee on, I think it's Highway 29. And yeah, sometimes you, you saw I know, the dragon's, a, I, th- I think it's, a, I forgot how many miles, 11 miles, 113 turns, you know, whatever they, they advertise it. <laughs> Boy, and, and by the way, and it's also a treacherous road, aside from the fact it's 113 turns in 11 miles. I, it, it's like, uh, <laughs> it, it is treacherous. And I've been saying this all my life. I am not a really good motorcycle rider. I'm a, yeah, I'm a good motorcycle rider, but I'm not, I'm not as good as I should be <laughs> by far. <laughs> so I, do I have the skills to make it? Well, I made it. You know, I, I've done it. But it's not like some of these guys that do it a lot. I guess they live within 100 miles or so of, quote-unquote, the dragon, the tail of the dragon. And they do it. They go, they go down there one weekend a month or sometimes a lot more than that. I don't know. And it, it's not like there could be a lot of bikes on the road. If you're If you're on that dragon... If you're not going fast enough, you're blocking people. And luckily, when I did it, there weren't a lot of people. But you could see some of these dudes, man, that just fly through this thing. They're so skilled. I, I love that. I'm so envious of of people that can do that. Make it look pretty easy, too. <laughs> I got one hand on the brake, and, and I'm going, oh, what's next? <laughs> so, but And then you get to the bottom. And at the bottom, there's a little place to eat and a souvenir shop. And there's a tree. And on the tree is hanging hundreds of motorcycle parts that, that, that are picked up from the bikes that crash. It's not funny. I know it's not funny. But it does keep it interesting if you need that. I don't need that. I've done that. <laughs> Probably do it again once before I die, I guess. It's exciting just riding a motorcycle and any brand people we've lost the understanding of, of why Harley and the reason why is it's American that's it that's the only reason and back in the 60s when I began riding Harleys that wasn't my first rodeo I'm telling you that wasn't my first motorcycle my first motorcycle was the NSU no one ever heard of that one and then the Triumph and then the BSA and they were all used bikes older bikes I was in the military, and whatever couple of bucks I could scrape up, it certainly never reached the, the level that could afford a brand new motorcycle of any brand. And and they weren't by today's standards a lot of money, but they were a lot of money. So I bought the Harley because I I saw that what, what was going on, the undermining of our economy, of everything. Not that I was that cognizant of everything, but I, you could see it, you could feel it. You know, Panasonic is coming in, and the Datsun or Toyota, or and then the Honda, and then I saw what Honda was doing. Now I, I understood the value of motorcycles because I used to daydream and walk into motorcycle shops, and I don't think I even ever went into a Harley shop. There was one in Columbia, South Carolina, Kirby's Harley Davidson, and I would go into the shops and look at BSAs and and Nortons. And, and those bikes, British bikes, and yeah, and Triumphs. And, and so I knew the prices. I knew what they could do. And, and I knew the performance levels of these bikes. And we went to a track, and there was the... And by the way, when the, when the Honda, what was it, the CB, whatever, uh, Dream 305 Dream, or the 305 CB, whatever, whatever the nomenclature was, when they came, it was not a pretty bike. It wasn't a sexy bike. It wasn't a bike that looked dangerous. But then they came out with the 250 Scrambler. 
Now, someone told me there was a 350 scrambler. I just remember that 250 scrambler, and it looked like a badass. And then I saw it win a race in Myrtle Beach. We were all down Myrtle Beach. We had a whole bunch of friends who were racing, and I'm trying to remember what I was what I rode down there. It wasn't my BSA, but anyway, go down to Myrtle Beach, and this is 250 Honda. Turns out that I knew the guy. He was a, a, a fellow airman who had, I, I remember he came back from Japan and he had this Honda car, which I, I knew and I, we, we talked about it. I remember him taking me for a ride, this little Honda sports car. It was amazing. And, and I guess he was stationed over there for a, a long time. So, but then I, when I saw it, the, this uh, 250 Scrambler on the track, I'm going, whoa, that thing's a beast, man. It could do it. We can't come close. And then I started talking to the guy because I knew him. And I said, what the heck, man? What'd you pay for this? I don't remember the numbers. It was about a half of what a BSA, a new BSA 650 would have cost. And I'm like, what? This is crazy. And there was a certain reality. And it, it took me a little while. I didn't go to the Harley dealer right then. I had a friend of mine named Bruce Shaw who was really smart about these things. And I'm talking to Bruce, and there was a bunch of us talking about the fact. I mean, Bruce had his Corvair Monza and Bookie, Bookie Monroe, I can't remember his first name, who was from someplace in Louisiana. He had a 64 Chevy Supersport. And we're talking Chevys and Fords and Americans and Oldsmobiles. I love Pontiacs, you know. And we're seeing this invasion. And so that's what gave me the impetus to go and say, oh, you know what, I, I, I've got to make this. And Bruce took me to Kirby's, and we're looking at these bikes, big, fat Harley Davidsons. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Is this it? And I, I think it was, um, I, I don't think it was my first year. It was, I don't know if it was my second or third. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm, I'm going to ride an American bike. And by then, I, I got used to the look, <laughs> this big hog look. And I got that bike. I, I, had it, I didn't trade it in. I, I sold the, the, the BSA. I think I had already sold the Triumph. Sold the BSA, took that money, and then I, uh, Bruce went with me. And, and to get the used Harley, it was about 10 years old. So this was 60, had to be 66, because I was still in the Air Force. Because Bruce, I only knew Bruce from being in the Air Force. So I got that and borrowed 80 bucks on top of what I sold my BSA for. To buy a 10-year-old used Harley, but it was American. And that's the only reason. And it was a horrible bike. I mean, when I rode it, it was kind of cool, you know, for riding for the 15 or 20 minutes at a time until some you, you're hearing something rattle. <laughs> you actually can have things fall off the bike. But, you know, we, we, we always had to carry things in the uh, toolbox, little pieces of chains. I mean, some of the guys I started riding with were, carried full chains, <laughs> full chains with them. And, and it, was, it was just the way it was. But we were riding American, and it was important to us, even though, and I, I say this all the time, it was probably the worst motorcycle in the world except for the Ural. And that's the only way I knew the name Ural. It was like we were talking about, what's the worst motorcycle in the world? I think this Harley Davidson is in the running. And then people would say, the Ural, what's that? <laughs> that's the Russian bike. <laughs> oh, my God. But that, that was the way we felt. And we felt, we thought that there was going to be a revolution of people saying enough of this stuff. Made in Japan, back in the early days, it was cheap and cheaply made and low quality. Well, that changed. And we recognized that this was a battle that this country was in. It wasn't, a, it wasn't going to be in. We were in it. And we recognized it. And I saw all these people, what was it, the 240 Datsun, the 240Z, the 260Z. Everybody made, you know, they went gaga. And I'm like, don't you understand that we're being sold, under, we're being undersold, undermined, that our industries are going to hurt, man. Now, it just, our industries cooperated in such an amazing way because unless you got what we called a Wednesday bike, or a Wednesday car, 
the factories, GM, Ford, Harley, I don't care what it was. It was in America. It was owned and run by the unions. Yeah, it was owned by a public company or it was owned by whoever. The unions dominated everything that went on in manufacturing in this country. Now, that could be an exaggeration, but it certainly resonates with anybody that lived through the 60s, 70s, even in the 80s. When GM and Ford, I mean, again, you know, I don't know when it was that that Wednesday car thing came into play. But, you know, Monday, they're just getting back to work. They're, they're still talking about the weekend. Tuesday, Wednesday, they're going full. Then Thursday, they're thinking about the weekend. And Friday, they're ready to get out the door <laughs> right after lunch. I mean, that's the way it was. And, and the quality of American products just it went downhill. It was horrible. And everybody was saying, yeah, you got to buy a Honda. You got to buy a Toyota. It was so much better. The quality was better. Everything was better. I never, I didn't, I didn't buy into it, but I was jonesing for that BMW. I mean, jonesing. And I did buy one, a 73, 733 stick shift. I don't know if it was a five speed or six speed. I don't remember. But it was like, wow, this is, I, and, but then I went right back to American cars. I felt like a, this isn't right. Yeah, it lasted a while, a year or two. It, it wasn't right. That's the way the country went. So we had, at the same time, that Japan and Germany. And the, the only thing I, I've got to say about Germany, they never underpriced the products. The Japanese did. I mean, you, you, you can't, there's no way you can justify paying the, the, the low price for the great products that we got from Japan at, at those numbers. The same products from Germany, whether it was BMW, Mercedes, or Audi. Audi was probably the lowest price of, of those brands. And they were still more than any Japanese bike, uh, motors, uh, car. Sorry. <laughs> so that's, that's the way it was going. And at the same time, I'm staying with America. But the country didn't stay with America. The country gradually slid into a situation where today you don't question somebody driving a Lexus. It's, there's very little differentiation between a Lexus and a, a Lincoln or a Ford something, or it's a car. Nobody cares about its pedigree, where it was made. Oh, they're made in America. The factory's here. So when Harley Davidson said, we're gonna be assembling bikes in Europe, like four or five, when Trump was in, and the, the tariffs were on there, and, and, and we tried to avoid the tariffs. And Harley Davidson said that. People said, oh, they're making their bikes in China because they were going to be made in, I, I, I don't remember if it was Taiwan or wh wherever it was. And Harley never stepped up to explain. They're assembling these bikes. They've been assembling bikes sold in Brazil, assembling them in Brazil for 40 years because the, the price... To send an assembled bike all the way down to Brazil, plus they'll make you disassemble it and reassemble it. But it's prohibitive. So they assemble, they don't make them there, and they weren't going to make them in, in Taiwan, wherever it was people were talking about. And I went on Fox Business with Charles Payne and tried to explain it. And I said, we, we made, they're made in Milwaukee and York, Pennsylvania. And if we want to sell them in Europe, we have to assemble them. We, if we're not going to, if, if, if we can't assemble, we won't. If we don't agree to assemble them in Europe, we're not going to make them. And so we won't be able, and he goes, no, yeah, no, no, no. That's semantics. Manufacture, assemble, that's a bunch of semantics. <laughs> what am I going to do? I didn't have Harley back. Believe me, I called Harley. I called the CEO. I talked to him before I went on. I talked to him right afterwards. I sent them emails and text messages because I was a dealer. It was costing me. There was an image that we're making the bikes in China. And, and that, that was all wrong. So I tried to make this point and get Harley to step up and for them to make the point. I suggest send a letter out to every stakeholder, every rider. I mean, even if it's just the hog members, there's a half a million of them or more. Send out something, have a press conference, do something. 
let people know. But no, they wouldn't do it. I, 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 I honestly believe that Harley Davidson has consistently had the worst marketing programs that I, I could have imagined. So, well, I don't want to get into it too much because here I am talking about this because I'm getting ready. I'm all excited about riding the Sturgis. So, and, and but I do want to, I did want to talk about these things. So for those who ride, you know, those who don't ride, get a sense of why, you know, I'm consumed with the politics of it. And I understand that people don't agree. I couldn't, I couldn't even convince Harley to talk about what the difference between assembling bikes is and manufacturing is. And, and other people, why a BMW that's quote-unquote made here in South Carolina, I've been to their plant. My daughter lives right around the corner in Greens, Greensboro. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Greer is where they live. And, and, but, but it's around the corner from the BMW plant. It's still, it's a German company. It's a, it's, it pays its taxes. It's owned by Germany. When they do good here, it means they're going to do better there. Nothing against them doing better there. But remember, yes, it's good that they employ Americans. It's good that they, that they use our labor and they pay rent and whatever it is. It's still a German company. So I would rather give my money to an American company. I'm not going to say that they're villains. I'm not going to say, oh, this is bad. I'm not because it's good, but it's not as good as it could be. It's still not American. And remember, that's the same, those are the, that's the same, fact. if they were making the Messerschmitt, yeah, that's, that's the German airplane in World War II, <laughs> the Messerschmitt, would, would you be buying something from the Messerschmitt factory? I'm sorry, that's how I feel. Is that antiquated? Is that irrelevant? I don't think so. And I, I, I think that we owe it to ourselves. That's why I love the whole America First initiative, because it, it doesn't mean that anybody else is bad. It just means put yourself first. Win the race. You're the, you're the first one. You break the tape. Don't watch somebody else do it and say, hey, you ran a good race. Be there first. And, and we, here in America, and of course, the Germans want the same thing for their country. They want the industry, the German industry in, in Germany. They don't want to buy that, that, all that stuff from Japan, the United States. So globalism seems to be, I don't want to say it's winning, but it seems to be. It's, it seems to be when, when everybody supports manufacturing in China. Trump was the first one to say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's take a hard look at this. No, we're going to bring everything back here. And it, that seemed to have gone away after that election. And we need to bring it back to whatever degree we've lost the tide that was turning. We need to bring that, that tide back, that tide of American manufacturing, that tide, the wave, not a red wave or a blue wave. It's a red, white, and blue wave of bringing the industry back to America. And it's not just about the jobs. It's about the revenue. It's about, it's about if you're going to, we're still a world where there's probably 40-something wars being fought right now on this planet. Okay, you're a pacifist. You don't like wars. You don't hate war as much as I do because I've been in one. So don't put your pacifist credentials up and, and, and think that you have, have any reason or any whatever to, to feel stronger about it or do more about it. No, there's a reality here, and you're denying that reality. The fact is, there's wars going on all over the place all the time. And we have American GIs stationed at probably 70-something places around this globe. So, you know, we can have that quick reactionary force anytime that we need it. And we've needed it. So do we want to depend on a foreign nation manufacturing the, the components critical to our weapon system. Let's call it the night vision. You know, call it the herring, the earphones, whatever it is. It isn't all guns and ammunition, but there's so many components to, to, our, 
to our quote-unquote weapon system from all the high-tech stuff that goes into airplanes and, and, and vehicles and, I mean, all of it. Do you want to be dependent on another nation? Not that they'll be our enemy, but that they could be influenced by our, potential, by our potential enemies? We don't. And one of the things that I've always was so proud of in, in, in being an, an American motorcyclist was that we, I always felt that we led because we were riding a horrible bike, because, but it was American. And so we, we set that, that example, and we try to make that example known and understood that you got to have that allegiance, the loyalty to the country, and it's worthwhile. And it was worthwhile because we celebrated. We celebrated Harley-Davidson before it was cool. When, when Harley-Davidson was bought by AMF in, what, 68? And, and th- that was because Harley was bankrupt, technically bankrupt, going out of business. And the vultures were coming from Japan and other countries, and they were going to pick at the bones. And it wouldn't be a Harley-Davidson if AMF didn't come in and, 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 and save it. So there was a, what, 11, 12, 13-year period from 68 till 81, when AMF owned Harley, they did everything they could. They didn't understand it. They didn't know it. But they did what they could, not only to keep it alive, but to help Harley get over the hump and create that evolution engine, which saved them. But the employees bought the company back in 81. The evolution came out in 85. Some will say, you know, 84 and a half. So uh, without getting too technical, let's call it 85. (laughs) So there was a four-year gap that the bike was still leaking and it still had all the all the problems that AMF handled. But we, we got through it. And it wasn't easy. It, it went, but as riders, we always celebrated not just the bike, the camaraderie of those of us. And you, you would never leave an American behind. That was way before we ever said, you'll never leave an American behind. You see a Harley Davidson broken down. One of your buddies has has a problem, or somebody you don't know. You stayed with them. You helped them. Who had tools? Who had the skills? Whatever it would took. With that, that there was a not just the camaraderie of those of us who knew each other, but the camaraderie of all of us who rode this American motorcycle. And by the way, Indian went out bankrupt, out of business, gone, kaput. In 1953, and no, Indian never came back. The name was bought and resurrected, and it's a good motorcycle made by Polaris. It's not the Indian motorcycle that began in 1901. <laughs> no, it's it's a different deal, which is fine. I just wish they wouldn't claim that it was. But be that as it may, there were still Indians in the mix, you know, even in the mid-60s, it was still wasn't uncommon to see an Indian motorcycle here or there. They were really well-made bikes, and they stayed around long after India went out of business. But, you know, it's the way it goes. Thank God that there was an American company to buy them. You take a look at the Italian motorcycle, world-famous great Italian motorcycle. When they got into trouble a few years back, it wasn't an Italian company that bailed them out. Ducati, the world-famous Ducati, which is a great name. You know, a complicated motorcycle, expensive, real high-end, high-maintenance, but a beautiful bike that ran great when it ran. And when it got into big trouble, Volkswagen bought it. One an Italian company. It's a German company. Yeah, when Harley gets in trouble, is it going to be Volkswagen that's going to buy them? I don't know. Let's, let's see what happens. So... When we get through this episode that we're in right now, it's gonna we're gonna sort out. We're gonna see if we're gonna go back to an American first mentality. We're gonna see if we get back to to focusing on bringing this industry back here for all the right reasons. We're back in a cold war. You know this again. I want to stay with the motorcycle ride, but I also want to point out why it's so important that you know we ride American. We buy American. I'm not telling you not to ride your Honda. The, the sergeants, if that's what you want to do. I'm making the case for Harley and Indian. 
I'm making the case for that American motorcycle. That's what I'm making the case for. Not against anything. So I, 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 I want to say that I'm, I'm looking at what this White House seems to be doing with what's going on. They're going to lower the tariffs on China. They're going to let, let me let me get out of the politics of it for a minute and and talk about Sturgis because that's what I want to do. I want to keep rolling, man. Keep rolling with New York, Mike. Let's just let's just talk about that because it, it encompasses everything that I want to that, that I want to focus on, and I think that's important to this economy, to you and your pocketbook and your family, your success and your future. I think if we all got together and understood how important it was for, for this American first this American first mentality that we should all have. And I'm rotting to Sturgis thinking about things like that and thinking about the fact that I'm a veteran and I could be in denial all I want. And I have been. I'm going to readily admit to you that I have been of any kind of PTSD. PTSD. Why? Because I'm just, that's the way I am. I just live in denial of anything I don't want to be a victim of. That's just who I am. And so even coming back, and I could think back to coming back to the States. I, looking back, you're damn right. And I could think back to the years. And I, I can also, and I had this conversation not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, with a very close friend of mine about Bruce Springsteen. And I'm going to do a whole podcast on how offended I am and most veterans I, I know are by Bruce Springsteen. And I, I, I'll expand that to the rock and roll world for me. And it, it all connects with PTSD. But riding to Sturgis, and I know there's veterans and there are veterans rides and they're sponsored by Indy and they're sponsored by Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson really sponsors in a big way the Wounded Warrior Project, which is bringing veterans riding all over the country on a regular basis. And these rides are important. And when we get there, remember, it was after World War II that the, 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 club, the club lifestyle really got together. It was, it was around before then. Again, the Rebel 13, the Galloping Goose, there's a, there's a bunch of them. But after World War II, that's, that's when the clubs really started. The Hells Angels and the, the Booze Fighters. And, I mean, these were veterans that came back and wanted that same feeling of excitement that you have when you're in the military and that same feeling of the camaraderie of being together, your brotherhood. I don't care who the enemy is. You're fighting for that guy next to you or that gal today, that gal next to you. You're fighting for the other soldier in the foxhole with you. That's who you're fighting for. And that camaraderie, you, you, it's hard to replicate it. But the club life does goes a long way towards creating that brotherhood. And that today, that, that sisterhood. And so this, this whole club thing is an American phenomenon that was so important to the returning soldiers after World War II, they didn't call it PTSD. They didn't call it post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people resent the D. It's post-traumatic stress. It's not a disorder. I don't know if that's right or not. I think that's worth having a conversation about. But either way, that post-traumatic stress coming back from a war, coming back from being part of this military machine that saved the world in like a moment of like, whew, that was a close one. <laughs> it, and it was. And so they, they, they came back and formed these clubs and rode American motorcycles because they understood that it was important. You don't see clubs on Hondas and BMWs. You, you see these clubs, the motorcycle lifestyle clubs on American motorcycles. And even today, we had the Harley for years and years and years in the contract when you joined the club. And then you got the Victory. And now you have the Indian. So it's American. These clubs, get you could knock them all you want. When, when I was state director of Beta California and went around the country promoting the motorcycle lifestyle and trying to 
get rid of government interference in our ability to ride these motorcycles. And, and there's plenty of it. Anytime there was a rally, it was the clubs that showed up. You could look over that crowd. Yeah, there's a, you know, an individual here or there, a hog member. 90% of that crowd were club members. And I don't care what you think of these clubs. I, I think of them as patriotic Americans. I don't think of them as criminals. I don't think of them as, you know, bad guys out there trying to cause problems. I just don't. I just don't. I think there are some members of clubs who are like that. And, and, and there, there are some people that work at banks and insurance companies who are like that. And there are some people who work at whatever industry and businesses and, and wherever they do and whoever. They, yeah, there's bad people everywhere. I don't think motorcycle clubs are, are made up of bad people or have a, a, a nefarious purpose in and of themselves. These aren't clubs that are quasi-mafiosa. They're, they're just not. And I don't care who tells you they are. That doesn't mean that there aren't some hardcore criminals that belong to motorcycle clubs. But there are also a lot of hardcore patriots. So these clubs get it. That's what they understand it. And so when I go to Sturgis and I look at the industry that I really, really, I, I love being a part of. And I'm not just talking about Harley Davidson. I'm talking about the lifestyle and, and, the, and the overall motorcycle industry, the, um, the aftermarket, as they call themselves. I guess the market is the, is the OEM, the, the original manufacturer, whoever that is, Harley or Indian or whoever. That's the original, the OEM. <laughs> it's the aftermarket is everybody else, and it's big. The aftermarket is big. So when I, when I go there, I, I, I want to tell them, I think they should have a theme, and I think the theme of Sturgis, and maybe every rally, should be bring it home, because it's all the aftermarket, and the aftermarket exists in America. I'm not saying it's all American, but it's a lot of America. And yeah, we, we respect our European brothers and sisters. We respect everybody that manufactures parts and makes it. We celebrate them. But we also think we want to bring it home. We want to bring this industry here. You cannot source the parts, not all the parts, to make it a motorcycle. You can't source all those parts in America. I don't know what percentage is, is, is American manufactured parts, okay? 70%? At one time, I thought it was 80-something percent. I'm sure it's still in, in the 70s. I don't think it's below 50. But that's only because the government, our wonderful government, makes it difficult by setting rules and regulations that doesn't make it possible, not easy possible, to manufacture these goods, and especially to manufacture them at any cost where you could reasonably sell it and you could put it together on a motorcycle without making the cost so prohibitive, which it's pretty prohibitive right now. <laughs> I mean, it's up there. I mean, inflation is inflation. The supply chain is the supply chain. And again, I go back to politics, to the government. We need to be energy independent. And I, I said this in my last podcast. This electric vehicle thing is a bullshit story. Don't believe it. It's, it's not the way. It's the way of the future. Way in the future. Give it a couple of decades. At least one decade. Give it at least 10 years. And I don't mean 10 years where you can say, okay, in, you know, 20, 20 35 or whatever, everything's to be electric. No, you don't say that. You could have it as a goal, but you don't have it as a mandate. And that's what this government has done. Give us the energy flow until we've replaced it and until we've shored up we've shored up the grid so we know we can handle everything and you don't have to worry about 12 midnight to 6 a.m. becoming prime time and the most expensive instead of the least expensive time because once you have all these electric vehicles and and they're all being charged they're going to tell you the same thing well if you charge them from 12 at night 12 midnight till 6 a.m. that's the lowest rate yeah, so everybody does that. And when you have too many, the price is going to go through the roof. That'll become the peak the peak hours and the high-priced hours. So we, can, we need to see that and fix that. we got a long way to go in the interim. We need to be energy independent. And we, we need to let people know, do not put this, um, what's we call it, gas in your motorcycle. And, and now they're going from 10 to 15 ethanol. 
Don't don't use it. It's going to ruin your engine. That's all there is to it. You want you don't want to believe me? You're going to do it anyway. Go do it. But I'm telling you, research it. I'm not going to research it here for you. I'm just going to tell you, I'm excited to be going to Sturgis. I'm excited to be a part of, and still, I'm still rolling with this industry. I still consider myself a part of the industry. Yeah, no, I haven't landed. My, I haven't got my feet on the ground yet. I'm, you know, I'm talking to a few companies, and I'm talking about a few things. You know, there may be other things that I do that aren't in this industry, but there's also some things that I do that would put me back in this industry, and I'd love to be back in this industry. I, I really think the motorcycle industry is just a great American institution, you know, in and of itself. It's, it's, it's really kind of cool. So, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of little things, political things, but I, was, I successfully did a whole podcast on rolling on my motorcycle. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. I like that. It feels good. <laughs> I want to see everybody on the road. I'm sure I'm going to do maybe one, maybe maybe another, maybe two or three podcasts before we leave. Again, a week from Friday. But I'll, I'm, I'm sure I'm also going to be able to do one on the road, maybe even from Sturgis. So I want to thank you all for listening. I want to ask you again, please subscribe Subscribe to Still Rolling with New York Mike. Yeah, it, it's uh, rolling, Roll Right Radio. I don't know, man. I, I kind of like that that Rolling with New York Mike. Maybe Still Rolling with New York Mike. Yeah, let me think about that a little bit. At the end of the day, I'm still New York Mike. <laughs> and this is still Roll Right Radio. And I still appreciate your listening and especially subscribing. Thank you. I'm New York Mike. And I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio Podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.